Hello and welcome to Silencing Women in the Name of God. I'm Devry Alice. Today we have on Jenny. Now, Jenny and I actually went to high school together and we had not really talked in quite some time. So I was so excited uh, to get a chance to kind of catch up on her life. Jenny talks about something really important today, and I think it's going to be applicable to so, so many women religious or not, really. Um, and that is starting off life really as, a, as an independent woman with thoughts and ideas and goals, um, being very, very driven and, and courageous, I guess, I think would be a good word. And how slowly over time she slid into these more submissive roles. Um, and again, very slow progression until she realized one day that she really had developed a lot of fear around doing things. She'd lost a lot of confidence in herself. And uh, we talk about her journey out of that place in Mormonism and also how she found herself again. And the steps that she took and the ideas that she had to kind of reclaim herself are so beautiful. And I think that they are going to be not only ideas for other people of something to try, but also a jumping off point of like, well, if she did this, why couldn't I do this? Anyway, this episode's great. I can't wait for you guys to listen. So sit back and enjoy. Hi, Jenny. Hello. How are you? Uh, well, you and I are having such delightful technical problems with you being in Australia. <laughs> so I'm great. <laughs> I'm still great. Take three or whatever this is. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, I don't, lately I've had a lot of tech issues and I was so excited because I had troubleshot most of them. And then Jenny's like, P.S., by the way, Australian internet is unreliable. And I'm like, no. <laughs> We did so well last time. I thought we'd be fine. We did. We did. Uh, okay. So we were talking originally and we're going to just redo this. Um, you, I had asked you to come on and cause I knew some of your story cause we talked a little bit cause we actually, so actually let me back up. Devry's brain fritzes out with technical problems and it goes <laughs> 7,000 different directions. Let me just like reset that for a second. So Jenny and I went to high school together and I think we ran in similar groups of friends, but we never like hung out, hung out. So we've known each other for a really long time without, I would say, deeply knowing each other. Would you yeah, agree? I agree. Okay, good. Listen, a couple of times I've said like, well, we never hung out. And then people are like, yeah, we did. And I'm like, oh, well, this is super <laughs> awkward. <laughs> I would now say, yes, we knew out? each other. We had classes together. And I mean, we both did drama. So we had, yeah. you're, like you said, we had similar circles. But we didn't hang out individually. Yeah. 
So I asked you to come on because we had talked a little bit about your story and your writing and and all of the things that you're doing. And you were like, let me think about it. And I said, okay. And then later you told me that you were actually taking the time to listen through all of the interviews that I had posted at the time, which I think there was like eight or nine. And you listened to all of them before you agreed, which I think is awesome. Um, And was also really beautiful to me that you wanted to come on after listening to all the stories. Well, I think what you're doing is important. And I, obviously I related to a lot of the stories that were being told. And I, I mean, I appreciate that you have a variety of stories and they're not all just from one faith, but they have this common thread throughout. So I think I decided actually I would have something to contribute. I've second guessed it and thought maybe I have nothing to, to contribute, but, um, but I mean, I think I do. And I think that that's the, sort of the point to keep having people tell these stories where you see some of these similar threads throughout that are common among all of everyone's experiences so far. Yeah, exactly. So hopefully you have something valuable out of mine. The common, the common thread is, is such a beautiful thing. Like I love that you said that because that is, and was the point of why I decided to do this and why I wanted to bring on different faiths is because the similarities are, are striking. Like I remember Mm. listening to a, where was I? I don't know. I was probably mindlessly scrolling social media because I have a slight problem. Um, and there, there was a a video by a, a beautiful, lovely Muslim woman, but she was talking about wearing, and I always am worried I pr- mispronounce this, the hijab or the, it's not hijab, right? That's a very American pronunciation. I think it's hijab. Hijab. Yes. Um, and I mean, it wasn't like, it was, it was a very, it was a full of guilt video where it was, you know, like we can't conform to these Western ideas and we need to not shame ourselves and we need to be modest and we need to, you know, and and it's the religion and the culture. And I understand that. But what struck me was the similarities to what we grew up with hearing mm-hmm. about modesty and, and dress and, and you could have, like, I listened to it a couple of times because I was like, Am I actually hearing what I think I'm hearing? And you literally, the only word you would have had to change in that is take out hijab and substitute in garments for Mormons. Yep. <laughs> and that's all. That was the only thing that would have needed to change. And it was exactly what I had been hearing my whole life. And so, yes, the similarities between everyone's stories are so striking. And we like to think of ourselves as so incredibly unique. (laughs) I know, right? And that was a problem I came up with, came up against while I was listening to all those podcasts after I'd agreed to come on because I kept thinking, oh my gosh, yes, that really, I can relate to that. Or that same thing happened to me. And I was getting overwhelmed by, oh, I should, I should talk about that. I should talk about that. And too many things. So I had to stop listening (laughs) for a while until I've (laughs) done the podcast with you. And then afterward, I'll go back and listen some more because they are fascinating stories, but there was a lot to relate to. Yes, absolutely. And I, it's all the stories are so, so big too. I think it takes a lot to listen and hold them as well. Cause it, it triggers a lot of stuff within each of us where yes, you're relating, but it's also, you're remembering the difficulty and the pain and it's beautiful, but it is also something that requires something of you. It does. And it's been 11 years since I left. So I i don't think about all of that experience as often as I did when I was closer to it. But having having brought it back up for this experience with you, thinking about it and listening to other people's experiences, I, I've been having dreams about it, like these emotions that I had kind of 
felt like I'd worked through and had moved beyond have been coming back. And it, it's been an interesting experience. So, I mean, thank you for that. Wow. I'm sure there's some value to be found in it. Oh, that is, that is amazing. And yes, especially when it's been a long, a long time. Sorry, I just realized I haven't read your bio yet and I don't want to forget to do that because I know you spent a lot of anguish over making sure that we had one and then I just forget <laughs> to do it. <laughs> I don't know about English, but I did stress a bit about writing. <laughs> All right. I'm overdramatic. All right. I'm overdramatic. <laughs> I admit it. I can't help it. Um, before I read that, though, I do want to say that I I love, actually, and I want to just point out, because you brought it up, uh, feeling like you didn't have anything to add. Because that is such a common thing. Like, we all do mm. that. Like, we're like, my story is not special. Like, I don't have anything to say. And we do all have things to say. And we do all have beautiful tidbits and monstrous revelations that we can add to this conversation that will help more people than we know. So thank you for agreeing despite your own voice saying, Oh, like it's not that special. I don't have anything. Cause I agree. You have some beautiful, amazing things to share. And I'm well, excited. And I think that it. that's part of why you're doing this, right? Because you want to show that every person thinks their experience is maybe just their experience, but the more you hear, the more you realize, actually, we share a lot of experiences. So I think my fear was, well, everybody's kind of shared everything I might share, but that's yeah part of the point, right? Just to show right. this is common. We've all experienced similar things, or a lot of people have. Right. Well, and I think, too, the wording matters. Um, and although someone may have shared something that you are about to share, you saying it in a different way is going to click with somebody that first person didn't click with. Like this happens in my marriage all the time. My husband will be saying something for years, years. And then someone will say it in just a slightly different way. And I'll come home and I'm like, Oh my God, you will not believe what I figured out today. And I'll tell him exactly. And he's like, that sounds so familiar. And I'm like, right. But they said it just different enough that it got through my thick skull. So, you know, (laughs) and I also think sometimes, yeah. And sometimes just hearing somebody say it, who's not related to you, who doesn't, who you don't think has an ulterior motive for saying it. It feels like it's. Yeah more objective sometimes if you hear yes. it from somebody else. Yes. Well, cause our walls are not up. Like when we listen mm. to podcasts, when we read books, like all of those things, we pull all of our walls down and we are just taking in information. So exactly like stuff gets in that a family member could have said or a spouse could have said, and we have, we have our defenses up in those moments. Mm. And so it just doesn't quite get through. I think that is such a good point. Okay. I'm going to read your bio. Because we need to get to know you better. And then we're going to just get going here. All right. So Jenny Pearson is a teacher, writer, and mother of two adult daughters. She grew up a member of the Mormon church on a farm in Idaho, where her love of reading led to a growing desire to get out of the small farming community and see more of the world. It's taken time and unexpected turns, but in the 25 years since then, she has accumulated a bachelor's degree in English literature, a master's in teaching, and recently, while taking time off after seven years of teaching, a master of creating writing, sorry, creative writing at the University of Sydney. Since leaving the church 11 years ago, she has managed to get out and see a bit of the world and is currently living with her Kiwi partner in Melbourne, Australia, finally getting back to her dream of spending her time writing. I love it. I love it. You've done so, (laughs) so, so much. And I actually, 
while I was waiting, while I was kind of prepping, I usually spend a few minutes before um, my guest gets on and I go over the questions that I've kind of think I'm going to ask. And I try to kind of sit in that space and remember what we've talked about. And, and I thought, you know, I want to do something here that I haven't done before. So I want to set up an arc, which I haven't done before. I just want to kind of lay down the story a little bit so that I think it's going to really help to know where the end is going to really see the significance of some of these points that we're going to bring up. Because in my opinion, knowing the whole arc, there's a lot more weight behind some of these things than appear at first glance. So we're just going to lay it down. So you started out life really like self-assured in a lot of ways. And you were a dreamer. You had a lot of goals, a lot of dreams, and you had some rebellion against what the Mormon church was saying, like, this is what you should be. Like, we should be a wife and a mother and just stay home. And you were like, that's not my, that's not my jam. Like, that's not what I have in mind for my life. And then we kind of go down a very slow rabbit hole of you making really small pivots away from those initial choices, probably not really realizing where those pivots were leading you because they felt small and insignificant at the time, right? Um, and then we, we are, we're going to follow all the way back around to you finding yourself and refining your dreams, obviously by your bio, like <laughs> refinding that part of you again and how you did that, why you did that. Um, and it's just a beautiful, beautiful story. So let's start out with how you were raised okay. um, and kind of what your upbringing was. So I grew up the sixth child of eight children um, in this you know, rural conservative family. Obviously, church and the traditions and culture and ideology of the church shaped a lot of what we were doing at home. We attended church every week, went to all the youth activities. And there was this idea that um, the women's place was you know, in the home to get married, to have children. And that was reflected in the way my family functioned in that my father was absolutely the head of the household. My everything, you know, sort of deferred to him. He was served first at dinner. He made any major financial decisions, even when at certain points during their marriage, my mom was making more money. Um, and, and, but I didn't, I didn't necessarily question it too much, even though they aligned, like our household um, sort of rules and traditions aligned with the church. I didn't always see it as coming from the church. I kind of thought of it as my parents being from an older generation. So when my mom would say things like, you need to be careful who you date because that's who you'll marry and how she had a lot of strict rules about modesty and what we were allowed to wear. And, and we lived on a farm but, and there was crossover, but mostly a lot of the, there were indoor girl activities or jobs and outdoor boy jobs. And there was just this division of, of like gender roles that was pretty strong. Um, but I didn't, I, I guess I just, I still felt like I had an outlet for a lot of the things that I was interested in. So I still conformed to all of that. I definitely was not a rule breaker. I, I didn't like conflict, but I thrived in school. And so I tended to put a lot of my effort into school. And I was the, the one child in the family who you know, excelled at that, who I was reading constantly, I got straight A's and that was encouraged. So I felt like it was a way that I could definitely pursue something that interested me in a way that was acceptable. Um, but, but I never really questioned the church too much or what was expected at the time. Yeah. Um, how far well, you do you want me to go with like, 
sorry. The Go ahead. guys, if if we talk over each other, it's because the video is cutting in and out, and the audio is cutting in and out, and so we we are losing each other. So, um, <laughs> we'll clean up and edit out what we can, but that's what's happening. Um, <laughs> like it's going to sound like we both are just like <laughs> completely disregarding <laughs> what the other person is saying, and that's not what's happening. Um, so when you said you didn't you didn't question, I think that. And I'd like your opinion on this. Like we grew up in a really heavy Mormon community. Like it's not like everyone had a different religion and we were the weird ones. Like it was the way that it was. And it, right. I, I think was really wrapped into the culture. Like it, it, mm-hmm. it was in how you worked your job. It's how you went to school. Like it was just a part of everything. It was. And I think the things I did question, which you touched on, I, I didn't see it strictly as a rebellion against the church. It wasn't that I didn't want to get married or have kids. I just, I didn't want that to be the priority. I wanted to go to, you know, go to university and have a career and do the things I wanted to do first. I think I had this goal that I wasn't going to get married till I was at least 25, which seemed really old at the time. Um, but, but eventually I still planned to do all those things. And I think I saw that more as a rebellion against my parents' generation's ideals mm-hmm. more than against the church at the time. Okay. So it was like, I don't have a problem with the teachings, but I'm a more modern woman. So I'm going to do all of, I'm still going to be a good Mormon. I'm just going to do it after. I yeah. And I don't I even want. think I framed it in the, in the context of be a good Mormon. I was just like, that's fine. That's fine. But this is what I'm going to do. <laughs> I don't know if I articulated <laughs> it that clearly in my brain at the time. Well, of but, course not. Yeah. See, and that's, I think that's what gets us though. And that's why so much of this stuff is damaging. And why I also wanted to talk about it is because mm. when we, when we're bringing all this information in, we're still forming, like we're learning how to walk. We're learning how to talk. We're learning what the societal rules are. And so it's just the way it is. And so we right. don't have thoughts like, that right it's not till afterwards that you're like oh that's probably like mm, that might be yes. what was happening there yeah exactly that's definitely the conclusion so, i come to and and that'll come up throughout the yeah. story i'm sure yeah yeah absolutely i remember what did you say you were voted in high school most likely to what what was it to become the first female president of the united states oh yeah it was in fifth grade actually yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in fifth grade that's amazing yeah. <laughs> oh, I totally thought it was one of those like the high school contests where it's like most likely to succeed, blah blah blah. Fifth grade no. is even better. That's delightful. Yeah. Um, well, because I took my like I liked I liked being the smart kid. Uh, people would call me like you know the smart kid as an insult, and I'd be like, yes, thank you. Like that was not an insult <laughs> to me. I liked being considered smart. <laughs> You're like, say it again, say it again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, that is not an insult. You need to work on your insults. Uh, Right, exactly. Maybe if you put a little more time in books, you could come up with some better vocabulary to throw at me, right? Oh, that's great. (laughs) Okay, so you and yeah, I remember that about you. You were very, very smart, very intelligent, did very well. Um, So you went to college. And did you say, were you the first one in of your siblings to go? Or did I just make that up? No, I was the first. Like my 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 dad had graduated; he had a degree, but my my mother didn't. And I was the sixth child, and I was the first one to go to college. And I think it was my parents didn't really encourage or or discourage it. 
I remember later after I had gone and figured out how to do it and gone to the counselor in the high school and she helped me apply, my mom made the comment that, oh, if, it, if I had realized that it was that easy, I think I would have encouraged more of you to go, but I had no idea where to even start, which I thought was wow. interesting because my dad could have. He had gone, he knew, but he was very hands off with stuff like that. I mean, even though he had these ideas about what you should do, if you actually went to him for advice, it would be like, you know, prying teeth. Like you couldn't get advice out of him. He would say, you just need to decide this for yourself. And it's like, I'm not telling you to make wow. my decision. I just, I'd like some advice on that. So, is, I mean, if you did things he didn't agree I... with, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> oh no, no. Yep. Again, cutting out. No, you're fine. Please continue. I thought you had done, you were done. Cause my video stopped. Um, so very much on your own. There were things he didn't agree with, but he still was pretty hands-off. Yeah. I mean, he would let you know if you were doing something he thought you shouldn't be doing, but but he still felt like it was his philosophy that we had to sort of figure out life on our own. <laughs> yeah. So did he, I'm curious, yeah. did, did that tie in at all to church stuff where like you guys were advised to pray for answers or just like, it's important that you're independent? Uh, we were encouraged to pray for answers. And I mean, there was a bit of contradiction because they still had definite rules about what was expected of us and you know, what they figured our lives should look like when it came to the church. It was like, as long as you're doing what the church requires you to do, I mean, you can figure out the rest on your own. It was kind of that attitude. As long as they weren't yeah. conflicting. Okay. <laughs> so you go to Boise State, you're the first one in your family to go. And you have for sure plans about getting your degree, doing your girl boss thing. And that gets a little derailed. So talk to us about what happened. So I got into Boise State and I got a job working in the admin building. And I, I remember this is this is a little example of my my dad being supportive, even though he was like, "Do what you want." I remember I wanted to get a parking pass for the admin building because it was right out front, but you had to spend the night in line because there were so few and you wouldn't get one. And but I was nervous, so he drove me over there and like slept in the car while I waited in line to get my admin parking pass. But anyway, <laughs> while I was there, like two semester or two months into the semester, I met, you know, my future husband while studying at the Institute building across the street because I had a class over there. So I was still doing what I should be doing and taking Institute classes. Um, and he was so a senior. Tell, for, for non-Mormon people, explain Institute building. So the Institute building is just, it's just the they they have like religious courses you can go take. So in high school, you take seminary classes, which are like Sunday school classes, basically, but throughout the, the school day. Um, and at the university level, they have a whole building dedicated for classes and activities and things to help you interact. It's mostly, I think, to help keep you active in the church and interacting with other Mormon university students. So I had a couple of classes during the week there. And it was while I was waiting for my class to start and studying that I met my future husband who was there studying and he was a senior. And, you know, I had these goals. I wasn't going to date and get married until I was 25 and I was 18 at the time. Um, but I started dating him. And I think the appeal was that he was about to graduate and go off and he was going to move, leave the state. He was trying to get into medical school. So he had you know, these ambitions and, and goals that aligned with my ambitions and goals in a way that I felt, well, okay, it's fine. I can marry him. Otherwise he's going to leave. And then that's going to be the end of it and go with him and still pursue my goals. I can still finish 
you know, get my college degree. I can still do all of these things while being married because he'll be pursuing his as well. So it'll be fine. But of course, um, a year into our marriage, I got pregnant unexpectedly. (laughs) That sort of derailed my plans and sort of changed everything. But I mean, not that there's anything wrong. Once you get pregnant and have a child, I was 21 when I had her, which seems really young. I actually cried when I found out I was pregnant because I was terrified and not ready to be a parent and all of that. But you just adjust. I mean, I think sometimes you you don't realize how much you just adjust to what's happening to you and your plans change so quickly. So I, I adjusted and we moved to Utah and started, you know, started our family there and kept, I kept trying to stay in school because it was such an integral part of my personality, like how I identified with myself that I was taking classes part-time in between, you know, having babies and trying to maintain my role as the wife and mother at home, which continued for several years. Um, But I think we talked about (laughs) how I had made the comment that Utah, I told my husband, if I didn't get out of Utah, I was going to become anti-Mormon because the culture there is so pervasive. Um, It's so different. Well, at the time, I thought it was extremely different. And on some levels, it is because it's amplified more than I think you see in other states. But as a child, I didn't really attribute all of it to the church. I thought it was my parents' generation. And in Utah, I didn't really attribute it to the church. I thought it was just the local culture. Uh But I remember the first thing that stands out in my mind was while I was pregnant with my first child and our home teacher came over and I don't think he was really that much older than us, but he already had like seven kids. And he was just bragging about how his wife had come back from delivering their seventh child weighing less than when she got pregnant. And that was like this point of pride for him. And I thought, wow, that sounds really unhealthy. Yeah, Why is that something that you're focusing on? I don't think this is supposed to be something you brag about. And that sort of idea about men, like the men and their views of their wives continued throughout very heavily in Utah. Um, and then we just saw more of that. When we moved to Farmington, we moved into this brand new neighborhood that was full of young couples and families. And so it was a lot of people like us, which was great on in some ways, but also they were like 90% Mormon. And there was just a lot of, a lot of comparison, a lot of competition, a lot of what, a lot of people accusing others of cafeteria Mormonism, which that's the first time I heard that term. Um, And if they were, what that, what that is. So, and I'm, this has been, this is a term that's been used for other religions as well, just cafeteria Christianity or cafeteria, whatever, but it's basically where you pick and choose which beliefs you agree with basically and just kind of discard the rest of them you're like these are the ones that i'm willing to live with this is this is what i'll accept as you know some sort of format for my life but yeah i mean i i was probably doing that but i did see others they would be watching each other and picking out those who they felt were doing that and i remember people getting called in to talk to the bishop because somebody had gone and told the bishop that somebody was doing something they shouldn't be doing and that attitude was really pervasive. And so much of what people were doing was on this basis of I'm going to either be blessed or punished for it. When I was pregnant with my second child, I remember we were finishing our basement and I was helping carry drywall down to the basement. And we were out 
in our garage with the door open and our neighbors were walking by and the, and the wife was like, oh, she shouldn't be lifting that while she's pregnant. Go help to her husband. And he just kind of shrugged and said, I guess I'll help. I could use the blessings. And I just remember thinking, <laughs> that's a terrible reason to help your neighbor. <laughs> but that attitude was so prevalent. Like everybody sort of had this, yeah. I'm going to do it for the blessings or I, I'm not going to do that because I'll get in trouble attitude which was terrible. And there was this, and there was one non-Mormon family on our street and they had, and they were very religious and went to church on Sunday, but it wasn't the Mormon church. And I just remember people not letting their kids play with the the children of that family because they weren't Mormon. And it was very clicky, that attitude. And, and it was very vain. I could just keep going on. So stop me at any point if you have something else you'd (laughs) like me to say, but, but, and I don't know if you know this about Utah, but it is, I think currently the second highest city for plastic surgery to per capita. It's been in the top five for years. And, and I think it's largely driven by this idea that the more righteous the men were in the church, the better looking their wives would be. And if that meant you had to get them a boob job, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember feeling that way. All of the, it didn't matter what the men looked like, but all the yeah. women were, I'm very concerned about image and making sure that yeah. they looked good. They were in shape. Their houses were all, you know, just so. And their children were Pinterest matching. And yes. I mean, even I remember my husband saying when he was on his mission, he had been told the harder you work on your mission, the hotter your wife will be. And he would brag about how he had been uh-huh. the assistant to the president. So therefore he had the hot wife uh-huh. or whatever. And I think it was supposed uh-huh. to be a compliment, but it felt so wrong, <laughs> you know? Uh-huh. Yeah, I do. And, you know, I, <laughs> like, listen, I'm not an unattractive human. However, by Mormon standards, I don't, I don't fit the Mormon standards of beauty at all. And so I really experienced that on the opposite side of the spectrum of like going to, you know, BYU, Idaho and not dating at all because I did not fit those standards of beauty. And I, I have a theory about why this is happening. So I'm going to throw it at you and I want you to tell me what you think, um, you know, kind of match it up to your experience. But this, yeah, and this isn't unique to Mormonism either. Like I've seen um, like Christian preachers, yeah, talking about trophy wives and how men deserve Mm -hmm. trophy wives for their righteousness, which just... Obviously, we have patriarchy at play and and a lot of toxic belief systems around control and and women being objects. So like that is its own part of this. But in in Mormonism, I think that there's so much focus on that scripture, be therefore perfect as your father in heaven Mm -hmm. is perfect. And somehow it has morphed into literally be perfect, like not be righteous, you need to be perfect. Your body needs to be perfect. Your kids need to be perfect. Your house needs to be perfect. Like it is Mm. perfection across the board that has somehow equated into godliness and righteousness. Mm, For sure. And it was definitely prevalent in Utah. (laughs) Yeah. And it is, it's, it is, it is. And here's what's fascinating to me is that well, and I guess this makes sense because how do you have perfectionism if there isn't a standard to measure that perfectionism by, right? There has to be a, there has to be a scale, but yes, when you go to Utah, you can see, like if you just sat in Walmart for three hours, 
you would be like, oh, here's a list of the standards of perfection in Mormon culture, right? Like you could go by hair, by body type, like you could just list off like this is what's expected because pervasive it is. It's everywhere. Yeah. So did you It is, and I wasn't like, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, did did you feel a need? Because like, listen, you're a beautiful, gorgeous stately willowy woman like there will be no video because the video doesn't work from australia so y'all are just gonna have to trust me that jenny is a beautiful woman did you (laughs) feel the need to conform or change parts of you in that culture despite Um, you being you i did in fact i mean i i did put a lot of effort into having the little pinterest family with the picture perfect outfits and all that but i had a breast reduction while i lived in utah because as you have stated, I, I'm tall and I'm thin and I was very disproportion- disproportionate and I hated it. So a year after I got married, I had a breast reduction and I didn't think of it as the same as people getting boob jobs, but on a lot of levels, I'm sure it was because it was about feeling unhappy about my appearance and I didn't like the way clothes fit, clothing fit me. And, and I didn't like, I actually didn't like a lot of the attention I got because of it. And so even though I say, oh my gosh, I can't believe all these people out there getting boob jobs just so they can look prettier. I mean, I'm not exempt. I mean, I I did fall into it to some extent. Not that I even regret doing it, but, but I'm, I mean, maybe I, maybe I'm a bit of a hypocrite (laughs) for pointing it out, pointing it out. I don't, I don't know. I think, I think we live and we learn and also there's variations in people's whys and, and I think being open about it is really what matters, you know, and that's what you're doing. Um, do you think, and I actually haven't asked you this at all. So if the answer is no, like that's totally fine. So you slowly you transitioned from like, I mean, I'm sure you were concerned about your looks and your appearance in high school because we all are, cause we're young and that is important, but you went from, your focus being education and your intelligence and your pride being, you know, yeah, I'm the smart kid. Like, this is what I want to do to falling into that. Like my kids have to look a certain way and my house has to look a certain way. Do you feel like there was a cost to that? Well, sure. Because it took precedent, which meant I had less focus and time on the goals I had previously set for myself. I mean, I hadn't given them up entirely. As I mentioned, I was still doing, you know, part-time classes and, but it wasn't the focus. And because it wasn't, it didn't receive the same sort of validation either, because those weren't the things people praised you for, which, you know, you should have your own internal motivation. And I did, but it's difficult to ignore the things that other people are praising you for. And so I definitely put a lot of focus on the things that were going to get that external validation. Um, and then all of the things that were for myself, I just sort of did on my own time. I fitted in where I could. I wrote a couple of novels in my 20s, um, but I got up at five in the morning and did it when the kids were sleeping and there wasn't something else that I should be doing with my time as a wife and mother. So I definitely think that. I could have put more time into those things in my 20s as my original plan had, you know, set out for me. Uh, I didn't give them up entirely, but they definitely lost focus. And also I started losing a lot of my independence because 
I would defer to my husband. He would make the choices if it was any major choice. He was in charge of the finances and he put gas in my car. Honestly, I didn't put gas in my car for 20 years. So things that seemed like they were nice and that it's like, isn't this a nice gesture that he's doing? And they weren't not nice, but they definitely started to chip it, chip away at the things I was doing for myself and the independence that I had started out feeling like I was, you know, going to stand strong in, but it started to deteriorate without really thinking about it. <laughs> I mean, I was busy. I had two children that I was focusing on. Right. And, and there's nothing wrong with the focus on two children and being busy. You know, that's life when you have two kids. But I think I, I, part of the thing that I love so much about your story and why I wanted to set up the arc at the beginning is because I think that this is a very common story and I think it's a, it's powerful in that so many people do this, right? It's like, well, it's fine. And this is nice. Like, why would I be upset about this? Because this is nice. And there's nothing wrong with him being chivalrous. And I don't know why I can't pronounce that word. Um, you know, <laughs> and it's these little tiny, tiny steps that just pull us away from who we are. And because they seem so small, we discount them as like, oh, well, that's, it's not a big deal, but it is a big deal because tiny steps equate to really large steps. And then all of a sudden we wake up one day and we're like, I don't know who the hell I am. And I don't know how the hell I got here. Mm. Yeah. And then you have an identity crisis, which you were getting to. Cause I guess <laughs> identity <laughs> crisis incoming, please hold. All right. <laughs> so, okay. Is there anything you want to, is there anything you want to add about um, Utah and any, any changes that, you were really acutely aware of before we move on to Washington? Well, there probably are, but I can't think of them now. And there's, you know, I think more, probably more of the kinds of things I've already shared. So we were in Utah for 10 years um, before we moved Oh, I didn't realize it was Washington. 10 years. When we talked the mm. first time, I thought it was like two years. You were there for 10? Yeah, I was at, I was in, Taylorsville for two years in a townhouse. And then we built the house and moved into the neighborhood in Farmington for eight years. We okay. lived there for eight years. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a long time to be in, in that culture for sure. Mm. And I just want, I have to say this because I, I'm pretty sure that I've said it in other videos, but I don't know for sure. And I think this is really important. What you, you already said, you know, so you blamed a lot of these things on um, your parents' generation, and then you moved to Utah and you were like, oh, it's not the church, it's the culture, right? It's just this area. Yeah. And yes, that area, there's just so many, the culture runs rampant. But that is a line that Mormons use a lot. Um, mm. And that is a line that I know other religions use of like, well, but it's not the teachings, right? It's not the doctrine. People aren't perfect. We can't blame God for people's mistakes. And while, yes, I would never blame God for people's mistakes, <laughs> the doctrine creates the culture. Mm, it is what it, yes, A plus mm. B equals C. Like it doesn't spring out of a vacuum. Like it doesn't just happen because there was one bad egg and then all the good eggs were like, we're going to do the same thing. Like the culture is being created from the doctrine. Okay. Yes. I'm stepping off and the soapbox. You can <laughs> add or move on. <laughs> Well, and that that's the conclusion that I came to in Washington. And that's kind of why I set it up that way. Like, first it was just, oh, it's my parents. They're old, which, I mean, 
they were older than a lot of people's parents at the time since I was born sixth. Um, and then it was, oh, it's Utah. It's the culture. And then we moved to Washington and it became readily apparent that, oh, actually, no, it's just the church <laughs> because I got right. a lot more contrast in Washington in a way I had not previously gotten contrast because we ended up in this really interesting situation where um, Mormon churches, you attend with a congregation within a, ge in a geographical boundary and our ward boundaries were, we were on the very Eastern edge of it, but our school district boundary, we were on the very Western edge of it. And there was just this tiny little overlap where our neighborhood was in the middle. And so the people that we associated with in our neighborhood and in our, because nobody in our neighborhood was Mormon. Most of the people weren't. I don't, there was like one or two families. Um, but, the, but the people we associated in our town and in the school district uh, were, they were not Mormon. And so we built up this social circle outside the church. And I think that's when it became pretty obvious that that's not the way you're supposed to do it because there were a lot of young couples in our ward that we didn't really do anything with because we had our own social structure and they were not part of it because part of our social structure was built from the kids, friends, parents. That's a lot of and neighbors and things like that. But we got called into the bishop's office and told that we should be hanging out with people in the ward, that the ward should be our structure, you know, our support and our social circle. <laughs> and that we weren't really part of the ward if we weren't making friends in the ward and that we needed to make friends with the people in the ward, <laughs> which at the time I kind of laughed at and was like, really? I can't, I can't believe that's something that they're actually telling us to do. But the longer we were in that ward, because we were there, we moved there when my oldest was about to turn eight. And so we were in that ward until she was about to turn 12. So in that, in the four year gap, a lot of the things I thought just that I had attributed to other things became very clear that it was actually just the church in general, which can't be separated into different compartments. They are all the same. <laughs> yeah. But um, would you like me to just go into some of my examples of things yes, that I noticed please. in that four years? Okay. So in that four years, we we had a lot of different roles. And a lot of these, a lot of these uh, gendered ideas kept coming up. I remember at one point I was planning a, a an activity for some women in the ward, and we were told that actually we could not use the building that that day because there would be no men, no priesthood holders available to chaperone, and women couldn't be in the building by themselves. And I kept thinking, because think you might gonna do? do something. I mean, like, who knows? The options are endless of what women may do in the building alone. Sorry, I had to go on, Jenny. <laughs> That's, that was my thought. Like, at first, I was like, what are we going to do? And then I thought, do they think we need to be protected? Like, I have no idea. But it boggled my mind. And I remember being I was in the Young Women's Program for a long time. And we were trying to plan activities. And we were told the activity we were trying to plan was too dangerous that the girls couldn't do it. And I was like, but the boys just did this exact activity two weeks ago. And they were like, well, yeah, but it's too dangerous for the girls to do that. And I don't remember what it was, outdoor hiking or kayaking or something. And we couldn't do it. We were not allowed to do it. Um, and, and so we had to like, you know, rethink things that were acceptable. And while I was in the Young Women's Program, I think that's where most of my, what the hell is happening? This is not okay, really 
really showed up. And it was because I was sitting in these classes because I was, I was a counselor in the Yellow Women's presidency. So that's the 12 to 18 year olds. And I'd be sitting in lessons on Sunday, listening to them talk about ways the women, the girls could prepare themselves to be good wives and mothers and skills they could learn in order to attract these return missionaries. And it wasn't ever to attract men in the church or boys in the church. It was the return missionary because you had to, first of all, that was just a given. You had to marry a return missionary. I, in fact, felt prey to this because I remember my high school boyfriend didn't want to go on a mission. And I told him, I will not marry someone who does not want a mission. Uh. Um, <laughs> then I got married while he was on his mission. <laughs> so no, I'm like, I think I know this high school boyfriend. We- <laughs> Yes. Who shall not be yeah. named. <laughs> he shall not. But I did get married while he was on his mission. So. Oh, well, that's how it usually goes. Um, so. <laughs> so there is just this recurring trend of putting men first and women being the support system of people getting up and giving uh giving talks and sacrament meeting in the bishopric saying how, you know, they're they're going out of town and they're leaving their 15-year-old in charge as the man of the house. And I just wanted to say, he has a wife and the teenager has a mother. Like, she's capable of being in charge of the house. But no, it was the priesthood that put him in charge because even though he's 15, apparently he's more capable. And it was just continuous, this kind of thing. And and so I would start to question things, but I would just set it aside. Like, it's fine. I was doing the cafeteria Mormon thing where I thought, it's I can just ignore the things that I don't believe in. Like I didn't go to the temple because I got weirded out by the temple ceremony. <laughs> I think I went yeah. once and I wouldn't bear my testimony even when I was pressured and got, you know, some pushback when I would was the only leader in girls camp who didn't bear my testimony. And I got to hear about it from the bishop and, you know, things like that. The, the, uh, mm. Okay, I'm sorry. I just have to clarify for people who are listening and wondering why I'm stammering and choking on my tongue. So basically what she just said was she went to girls camp, which was like sitting around the fire. There's always a testimony meeting, which is we all stand up and we say how true the church is and how much we believe and all of these things. And there is an expectation that the leaders would would do that to set a good example for the girls was the bishop actually there or was one of his counselors yeah, there? Because remember, no, it was the bishop. Usually the bishop or the counselor would come for the testimony meeting night or whatever. Um, and it was the bishop that was there. And I remember everybody had kind of gone around and spoken and he looked at me and asked me if I wanted to share. And I was like, nope, <laughs> thanks. Okay, so sorry. So the bishop is there because he has to keep you all safe and any the women can't have any activities without the bishop being there. Well, and, and he needs to be there to be the spiritual leader. <laughs> so for because the you didn't set a proper example, like you got talked to about what? Like how disappointed he was? So I even got some pushback um, at girls camp during testimony meeting where the bishop had come to be the priesthood, you know, spiritual leader present for that night while everyone bore their testimonies. And I it's expected that all of the leaders bear their testimony, but I didn't. And so in everyone, it's like the silence, I get the stare and the bishop's like, do you want to, did you want to add your testimony? And I'm just like, nope. And that wasn't very well received. But um, I think the problem is I was trying to fly under the radar. And so when I would do things like that, I put myself kind of right in their sights. (laughs) And, and that was happening to both myself and to my husband. We were doing things like that, that, started to get us noticed 
by the bishopric. And But even before that, I think it's also important to note, so I was in the Young Women's Presidency, so I was involved in all of that, which gave me kind of an eye-opening about, you know, some of the things that were happening and gave me a new perspective on the things that we were teaching young girls. But while that was happening, my husband was the secretary to the bishop. And so he was sitting in on these meetings and learning that so much of what we had been sort of told was inspired and for the good of the people or whatever wasn't. He said it was it was really just kind of gossip about what people were doing and manipulate people into doing, you know, what they felt they should be doing. And if someone was was showing signs of going astray, then they would find a way to rope them back in and involve them in something so that they would stay part of the church and not leave. And so I think that was, I didn't, I mean, I kind of knew that at the time, but that was sort of making him start to doubt things. And then I was listening, but we, we didn't talk about it. Like there was no, oh my gosh, can you believe this is happening? At least not really, maybe superficially, but having actual doubts and questioning it wasn't something that we ever talked about. So I remember he started having, I mean, he was starting to act weird. Like he would skip more. He would wear, I remember he wore a blue button up shirt to church one week and I got called into the bishop's office and they were like, so we noticed that your husband has been wearing a blue shirt to church. And I was like, what? Then they, they saw that as a sign of somebody who was falling away because it is expected that every man wears a white shirt to church and he was wearing a blue shirt. And so it was a sign that he was rebelling, you know, and I laughed. And then I realized, oh, he's serious. He actually takes this very seriously. And I just kind of brushed it off. I was like, I seriously, no, even though it wasn't, he wasn't wrong, but, but it was shocking to me that that's something that they would keep such close tabs on. And they ended up putting him in the, in as the ward mission, one of the ward missionaries, which now, I mean, after the fact, looking back, I could see was definitely them trying to put him back in a place where he was seeing all of these new converts talk about how great the church was and all that it had done for them. Yeah. And, and, and I think that, I don't think that it did what they thought it would do, obviously, but because there were too many of these experiences that we kept having about, you know, not, not following the rules. And at the time, I think we had quit paying our tithing and my nephew was getting married and because, and my temple recommend had expired because I didn't use it ever, but, but I still kept it because we had to keep up the pretense. And I remember my nephew wanted me to come to his wedding in Idaho and he wanted me to take pictures for them. And so I had to get my temple recommend renewed. So I went in and did the bishop's interview that you have to do. And he asked me about the tithing. And I was like, well, I don't work. I don't earn money. Therefore, that's not on me, right? He earns the money. He pays the tithing. So, I mean, you can't really hold me accountable for that if he's not paying tithing. And so he was like, okay. And he gave me the recommend. But you have to get it signed by the bishop and the stake president, you know, higher level up. And so I scheduled my appointment to go meet with the stake president to get it signed off. And then a few days later, I got called back to the bishop's office. And he was like, we're going to need to take that back. Like we actually can't give you a temple recommend because you, if you can't get into heaven without your husband, which we know you can't get, you can't go to the temple without him either. Like you're not worthy on your own. And so if he's not there to help you get there, (laughs) you're not worthy to go. And I was like, are you kidding me? And so I didn't go to my nephew's wedding 
and I didn't get my recommend. But I mean, I these kinds of that. So I want we. I would like to talk about that for a second because I think that okay. it is hugely important. There's a narrative in, I mean, all churches, but in Mormonism as well of, you know, women are so, so honored and so loved and equal and all of these things, but you were not allowed to walk into what is referred to and called a house of a Lord that it is expected that you attend in order to go to heaven and you were not allowed the recommend, which is a pass to get in, right? Like you weren't allowed the pass to walk in the door because of the behavior and choices of your husband. Choices that you had nothing to do with. I think what bothered me more than even being told that 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 I hadn't that it wasn't a choice that I had a part in. It was just the fact that regardless of whether or not I had any part in it, him saying you cannot get into heaven without your husband and you cannot enter the temple without your husband. Like that was the part that had me completely rebelling against this whole idea in general. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you've, and you know, mixing that as kind of the icing on the cake, because you've already been noticing in young women's how, the girls are treated differently and the expectations are different and, you know, we're training them to find a husband and you're being bothered by that. And now like you're not allowed to go to your nephew's wedding because of a choice your husband made, like good Lord. Exactly. And so these choices kept piling up and I'm sure there are others that I had thought of sharing that are eluding me now, but I had managed to stick with it and take the part that I could accept and ignore the rest for a very long time because ultimately I knew that if we left the church, it was going to be social suicide because our family members and our social circles and everybody was in the church and could potentially cut us off because we had all heard the stories about people leaving the church and their families cutting them off. And, and at the very least, I knew they would be upset about it and they would treat me differently. And, and so I had hung on to that that it's fine. I don't have to agree with everything. But the more things that were actually having a direct impact on my life, and I knew were going to have a direct impact on my girls' lives, right. that's when I started finally thinking about, you know, I need to do something about this. And about that time, my husband was having similar thoughts, which I didn't know. However, they were manifesting in his behavior because he was very distant and he was very grumpy and I didn't know what was what was happening with him. And everything just was, you know, feeling a little bit more stressful. And I think we finally had a conversation about it and realized that we were both actually thinking the same things. And we just decided that we would quit <laughs> cold turkey. Like we were both in positions of, you know, some leadership. And People thought of us as very active members because we went to all of the things and we just decided this is a, this is the last week we're going to go. We just stopped. Wow. And, but, but he did admit at that time that the reason he hadn't told me about what he was thinking was because he was convinced that if he told me he was thinking of leaving the church, that I would divorce him because that's, I mean, that's what happens. Women whose husbands leave the church are often encouraged to leave them because as we've just learned, you can't get into heaven without your husband. So if your husband's dragging you down, got to cut him free and find someone who's going to get you there. 
And so that was his real concern that I would leave him. So luckily for him at the time, um, I didn't, I didn't obviously, I agreed. And so we decided to leave. And, and I think part of what helped us do that was knowing that we, we now had a social circle that was not part of the church. And I was highly motivated to keep my girls out of, out of the system that was going to teach them that they were basically second-class citizens and that they had limited choice on what was acceptable for them to do with their lives. I did not want them feeling that way. Right. So we got a lot of pushback, obviously. Right. <laughs> um, and people were shocked. And we, got, we had, they'd send missionaries over and the, the president, the, the bishopric and the young woman's presidency, I remember the president whom I'd been working with, sent me this big, long letter about how I was damaging my children, essentially being a terrible parent because I was not allowing them to know what truth and light was. Like I had been raised in the church, so I knew what truth and light was, but I was denying them truth and light because I was taking them out of the church. And I just remember that made me so angry that I sent her this letter back. I I wish I'd saved it because I can't remember everything I said, but I just remember rattling off all these beliefs I had about what it meant to be a good moral person and how this was my truth and that was my truth and how people should have their own moral compass. You shouldn't wait for some external entity to tell you what was acceptable and how to live your life. Like just because you weren't attending a church or a religion that told you how to be a good person, that doesn't mean you can't innately choose to be a good person. And I think it surprised her that I shot back with that because she came over and was like, you know, kind of apologized for doing it, but stood firm on this belief that unless we stayed in the church, we were not going to lead happy lives full of truth and light. Mm-hmm. So that's, that was this ongoing issue we had. Um, and, and we knew that as long as we had our names in the record of the church, that it would keep happening because you move and the missionaries find you and they send people to you. And so we ended up hiring a lawyer to basically write this letter to remove our names from the church and to stop contacting us, which they did. But I remember being really nervous because every year you have tithing settlement where you meet with your bishop and you go over whether or not you paid your 10% for the year. And on the sort of receipt they give you, it lists all of the members in your family that are part of the church. And I knew that when they sat down to tithing settlement that year, our names would not be on there because we had removed our names. And I worried how like our family would, would react to that. Because we didn't tell them, they knew we weren't attending church, but we didn't tell them that we had our names removed, which was a much bigger deal to them. Because in their minds, we were, you know, no longer going to be with them in heaven. Like this was, this was it. We had cast ourselves out, (laughs) which I sympathized with, though I did not believe that. Yeah. I have to say, my stomach just dropped out because this has also been, so I removed my name a few months ago. Well, all of our names. And, um, that was exactly my fear is, is that when my dad does tithing settlement that yes, he will be alerted that this is what we, we have done. And I had kind of forgotten about that. And tithing settlement is like now, like this is the time of year. And so all of a sudden I was like, oh shit. (laughs) (laughs) So that's fun. (laughs) But, it but is, at least you've been very, very open about it. It's a very real fear and it's, it makes me angry because it is just, I I feel like one more tactic of manipulation, like let's make it as hard as possible 
and put up as many walls as we can mm. to keep people in, you know, exactly what you were, you were saying. And they, they know the warning signs, exactly what you have expressed, you know, and, and they know how to go about that. But anyway, okay. Side note, I'm going to reset. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. <laughs> they will but, not you know, be fine, but it's okay. Something I think might be important to add right here is this idea that so many people, and I think this was reiterated when um, my husband was part of the uh, uh, ward missionary group, because they would, he was constantly being subjected to these people who were talking about how they had not been members of the church or they had fallen away and their lives were a mess and how they had had all kinds of issues with, you know, drug addiction and alcoholism and abuse and just their lives weren't going well. And then the church brought them back in and their lives cleaned up and they were much happier and they had success in life and how that's, that's the church. That's what the church did for them. And I just, and then that's a lot what they tried to focus on us when we were leaving. And I think, I don't think they're wrong in that. I feel like the church is very structured. Obviously we've seen that they want you to completely involve your, every aspect of your life within your church community. And they do create really great structure. You don't have to think about what you're doing. You just have to say, what should I do? This? Okay. And you do it. And so, I mean, that, that might seem simplified, but it definitely creates a lot of structure. And I think a lot of people really welcome that structure. And I think it does help a lot of people who struggle to create their own structure because it gives them a framework to live their lives by. So I'm not saying that everything about it is bad. I do think that the community that's created in the church and a lot of the values they say they promote are positive, but there are too many strings attached. And it's not because the the gospel has improved their life. It's because the structure <laughs> has improved their lives. And so that was something yeah. that I had to grapple with when I left because I had to create my own structure. So even though intellectually, I was like, I I disagree with the ideology of the church and the the philosophy and all of these things. I, my whole life had been structured upon the framework of the church. And so when that's a very real struggle when you leave, because a couple of things happen. One, you have no structure. Well, maybe, maybe you have no structure. You feel like you have to create your own, but two, so much of who you are and your identity has been tied up in what the church has told you and taught you to be. And so once you finally stop pushing aside the things you don't agree with and you address them and think, okay, why do I not agree with this? And you analyze it and you decide what you actually feel about that thing. You, it doesn't stop <laughs> with the few things you already knew you didn't agree with yep. because suddenly <laughs> then you're like, oh, <clears throat> well, I don't agree with this thing, but why do I agree with this thing? If this isn't true, is this true? Like, why do I think that's true? And so suddenly I found myself questioning every single belief that I'd had for everything. I mean, for sure the church, but for everything else as well. And so I, I spent a lot of time thinking about each each individual aspect and belief and all the structure and all of it. And if I don't believe this, you know, get rid of it until I didn't know what to believe in so many ways. And I felt like I had... I had to start from scratch, deciding every on everything, like intentionally deciding what am I, what am I going to believe? What am I going to bring into my life and use to build this structure? Which was a very painstaking process. And it just so happened that at that time, 
in addition to leaving the church, I also decided to go completely plant-based. So I wasn't eating meat and I wasn't eating dairy and I was cutting out sugar and I cut out the church and, you know, I, all this stuff had, it totally helped, felt like my identity was crumbling in a way that I was having a hard time struggling with. Like, who am I even? Like, what's even left? <laughs> How am I going to define myself? Which sounds very dramatic, but honestly, it felt very dramatic at the time. And, and that was a, that was a process that took some time to get through because you do have to, and I think you've talked about this, like throwing out the bricks and deciding which of these can I actually keep and continue to build yeah. this structure with. Um, yeah. So that took a lot. That was a terrifying time. I mean, even though I felt good about my decision leaving, it suddenly became a lot more work. Like staying would have been easy, but leaving required all of this extra internal work in order to figure out, who am I? What do I believe? Why do I believe this? And what am I going to use to, you know, make decisions going forward? And I wanted to, do, I, I felt this extra pressure to make sure it was something that I wanted to, to teach the girls and to be an example for them because I had to undo so much. I, I wanted to create fewer things for them to undo later yes. and help them be more open-minded. And so that was a, that was definitely a struggle. I think I came to that realization of, okay, this is where I stand <clears throat> relatively early on. Like I, I struggled with it for, I don't know, six months or a year, but it was like, okay, this is what I'm doing. I immediately started, you know, trying to take back some of my independence because I knew that I had lost a lot of it at that point. And so I went back to school and I got my master's in teaching. Like we quit in July and I went back to school in September and I felt like that was definitely me sort of reclaiming my, my life again. But honestly, I obviously picked teaching in part because it still was still flexible around the girl's schedules. I could still be the primary parent. I guess so I mean, a lot of those things were still in place, but, but I did feel like I was making progress in the right direction and it, the progress took time, but the, but, but the intellectual concept that this is what I need to do. I felt like I came to terms with and and it took a lot of work once I got there, once I decided that, but, but I was ready to just, okay, this is what I'm doing and move forward. Yeah. Oh, so much. So I, I'm going to apologize in advance if I, if I ask a question that you already addressed that it cut in and out really bad because of our pre-interview, I think I got what you probably said based on how it was blipping in. So just apologies. It's not that I wasn't listening. I was, well, I mean, I wasn't, but it's not my fault that I wasn't. Um, <laughs> technical I wasn't listening um so I had an interesting conversation this week and I want to I want to know your thoughts about um this idea when so you spent all of this time figuring out yes like what bricks am I throwing out what bricks am I going to keep um who am I actually what do I want out of life how what do I want to you know, decondition in my girls and, and yeah, it's an astronomical amount of work. And it's painful. But what I think maybe this has created, like that process, I think created something in me and I think it creates it in all of us. And that is we become much more open to dialogues, to differing ideas, to different ideologies. We, we become 
better communicators, more flexible, more willing to like listen to someone else and be like, you know what, that's not for me or that's interesting. And I th- I feel like a lot of the defensive mechanisms that are in place when we are in a, in a super deep um, ideology is not the word I'm going to want it, but that's what we're going to stick with for now. Um, when we're really deep in these beliefs, right? we become very closed. And I feel like this process creates a very different version of ourself. Um, Mm. Have you, like, would you say that you agreed with that or that you've seen that at all? What are your thoughts about that? No, I absolutely agree with that. And we talked about this a little bit in the pre-interview, but that's sort of where I came away thinking that, okay, this thing has happened. I disagree. Much of my life has been devoted to this. This has created these internal habits that I'm going to need to work on. But actually, I have this really wide new perspective that I may not have had if I hadn't gone through this and been forced to confront all of these these thoughts and beliefs. And so I felt a little bit grateful in that now my perspective seemed to be a little bit more like you were saying i felt more open minded i felt more willing to to question and i felt like i was going to critically approach things um with you know with just more thought and more willingness to to hear something out before i made my decision and i think all of those make you a more intentional person but also it, i feel like you it kind of puts control back on your plate so you're yeah. the one who is deciding and you're listening and you're being open-minded and you don't have to try and fit what somebody is saying to this pre-developed idea that someone has given you. Yes. You get to just go, hmm, I don't know. Let me, let me sit with this and think about it. What do I think about this? You don't have to say, Oh, how is, how can I make this conform to this idea that I'm supposed to be believing? And so oh, I so absolutely agree and completely experienced that. And I think it's, something that's continued to develop since then over the years, since I left the church. Um, interestingly, and I remember we discussed this, that's not necessarily everyone's reaction. And I found that, not that I want to tell my then husband's story, since we are no longer married, um, but, but his was very different. I mean, his his objection was largely in that he felt like he had been lied to, that things weren't as they had been represented and he wasn't in a position he had been promised or, and I don't know if he had all of these thoughts. I knew he was angry about the lying, but we spent a lot of time about the time we left reading other people's stories on the boards where people were leaving and writing their stories, which I think it's interesting to note more men are on those boards than women. And that more often the men are angry, (laughs) angrier about being tricked or, you know, or about the misrepresentation of the history of the church or of, of, you know, just what they promise you. And I, I didn't think about it too much then, but later I remember I was thinking about it and I thought, I wonder if there's some sort of reason why men tend to be angry and women not as much. Not that we're not angry. I, I just think that we sit back, we reassess and we move forward. And and I could be wrong. This is completely speculation. But in my mind, I feel like it has to be related to the fact that in the church, the men are given the power and they're promised all of these things. And so when you leave, you're leaving that. And so now you have to go find it somewhere else and build up your, and like, you know, you, you're, you're losing a lot of power in some regards, whereas the women are gaining it <laughs> by yes. leaving. And so yes. you're like, huh, that was a terrible thing that was happening to me. I, well, I'm glad that I've seen through it now. 
And now yes. I, I'm going to take this new power and I'm going to do something with it. And so I feel like that might've had something to do with it. Yeah. I I think there's definitely something there because, and I love, I love that you made that specification, like the men are losing it, but the women are gaining it because I definitely had moments of extreme grief. I had moments of anger for sure. I think we all have some where you look back and you're like, oh my God, like this has done so much damage. Right. But exactly what you said, like I wasn't stepping into a quote unquote lesser role. I was stepping into myself with no rules. Like I was stepping into myself with more authority to choose for myself, to learn for myself, to connect to whether I believed in God or not. And then to connect to that being all by myself. Like it, mm-hmm. it is, it, it is a claiming of power for women and I absolutely believe, particularly in uh, Mormonism and in religions where the patriarchy is is honored at a much higher level, right? Where like men make all the choices and men do all of this stuff. Um, yes, it is. It's a loss of power. It's a loss of influence. It's a loss of, in Mormonism, your role as a creator, in the, you know, in the future to come, like it's a huge loss. Mm, yeah. But I, I think I too, and I, I, I would love if you can, and we are going to respect that, you know, we're not going to go into huge detail with your husband's story because that is his, but from your, your perception and what you witnessed, um, I would love if you could talk about how the difference in your approach really affected, let's say your levels of happiness. I think that might be a good place to start mm. because you were, yeah, approaching it from a introspective and curious place, you know, and he was really lost in anger and the energy. And I'm just going to talk in like super spirituality terms, but like the energy and the vibration of anger is very, very different and it doesn't mm-hmm. pull down walls like it creates walls. So mm-hmm. if you can, I would love for you to just kind of compare and contrast anything that you noticed by choosing one over the other. So I, I mean, as I've stated, I already just kind of just got about the business of moving on, went back to school, got another degree, you know, started teaching, felt like I was making these decisions, started ultimately started doing some travel with my girls. That was something I had wanted to do that I hadn't been able to do. Although that comes a little bit later, but, um, and he had a hard time letting go of it. Like he wanted to constantly be reading about the, you know, reading the anger that other people were expressing and the missionaries would show up and he would invite them in and tell them all the reasons they were wrong. Like he had to prove that, that his perspective was the right one and that everyone needed to hear it. And so, and, and I think that knowing now how things kind of panned out over the next five, 10 years, that continued to be a part of his decision-making process in an, in a negative way. And, and it was that whole idea that he had lost something, his, you know, his youth, when he could have been doing the things that other teens and 20 year olds did, he was going on a mission and getting married and he missed out on that because he did what the church told him to do, which some of that he directly expressed. And some of it I just sort of saw happening as we went forward. But um, but I didn't want to dwell on it. I didn't want to be angry. I just wanted to like 
now that we've made this decision, let's take advantage and change our lives, <laughs> move forward. And so there was definitely a difference in the way we approached things, um, which I do think had an impact on how we how happy we were able to be with that decision. I mean, I don't want to say too much more than that, but I feel like that sort of illustrates. And I think that will become more apparent if we if we start talking about yeah. what that looks like down the road um, yeah. when our marriage fell apart, um, which we can just delve right into. Yes, <laughs> if you'd go, like. girl, go. Okay. So here I am thinking I've completely reinvented myself. You know, I've decided what I'm going to do with my life and I've moved forward with it. And I, I think of myself as being this independent minded, you know, capable woman. And about five or six years later, uh, at that point, uh, my husband was doing a lot of travel for work and he wasn't home. And I suddenly realized that actually I was falling back into some of those roles. I was waiting around for him to get home, for us to do stuff, for him to make decisions. I was staying in my comfort zone. Like I'd expanded my comfort zone and I'd done these things. And then I just kind of stopped without realizing it. And so I was starting to fall back into that role of support and weight. And I was not comfortable with it. Like it kind of made me angry. Like I made this decision already. Why do I have to make this? Why do I have to do this again and stay persistent? But I think that it, it really kind of showed me that I, it's not something that you just decide and that's it. Like you have yeah. to keep deciding and you have to keep being aware of it. And so I started Brave Girl Diaries, this blog and Instagram, where I was like, I'm going to be braver and do these things that make me nervous. And I'm going to make my girls do it with me so that they're not scaredy cats like me. And we're just going to put post it online because that, I mean, there's nothing to hold you accountable, like putting it out there for the world to see. So <laughs> I started trying to do more independently rather than waiting around for someone, you know, for my husband to decide and do it with me. And, and so that involved things like you know, driving into Portland. I, I would wait to be driven into Portland because I didn't like driving in the city. And so I had to just start doing it and traveling because I had wanted to travel and I had tried to plan family vacations and I wait, 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 no decision would be made. And so I decided to just plan them. Um, my oldest daughter wanted to go to, uh, to South Korea for her graduation trip. And so I planned it and we went and we started traveling more. The girls were really into K-pop music. And so we would book concerts in other states and we would fly and we would go and I would book them. And I would write about my experiences in my blog and post pictures on Instagram because I was going to make myself braver and I was going to be independent because I thought of myself as independent. And if I wasn't actually doing it, I was a fraud. And so I started doing that and it did help. But then... Um, it became apparent that other things were happening in my marriage that were not fixable. <laughs> and it it came to a point where I ended up filing for divorce. And well, I quit my job because uh, we were going to move to Chicago. And then I just found out a whole bunch of stuff I hadn't actually known, some stuff I had suspected. And so I ended up saying, I'm not, I'm not going to do this. Like, I'm not going to stay and accept things that I wouldn't want my girls to. Yes. And so that was sort of my motivation again. Like, this is scary. Do I know how to do this? Like, I didn't, I didn't know how to be a single person. At, I think I was 38 at the time. Um, and I, I started going to a counselor and I remember talking to her about, you know, it's fine. We can work it out. Like I wanted to just give in and not get divorced. And she 
was really good about, you need to stop and think and not just make decisions because you're in the hot seat. And I would say, but I don't know how to do these things. Like, how am I supposed to be a grown adult? I'm such a fraud. And she said, just because you haven't done something doesn't mean you can't do it. It just means you haven't done it yet. And I just remember, I, I really, I just hung on to that and thought, okay, I can do this. And she reminded me that I could just get people to help me. Like, I didn't have to know how to do everything. I could ask people and they could show me. And so I pushed forward because I wanted to do it for myself, but I also wanted the girls to see that they could do it for themselves. And so that, but it also put me back in that position of, I thought I had come so far. I thought I had become independent. I thought I had learned how to, you know, do these things for myself, but I have not, (laughs) or at least not to the extent that I had, that I thought I had. And so even though I had been, you know, six years at that point since we left the church, I had to do, I felt like I had to do stuff all over again. I had to stop and reassess and I had to push myself to make these, these new decisions. And, and it was uncomfortable. And I mean, it's been another five years since then. And it feels like it's just constant. And I think that's the thing that I took away the most that, that you have to be aware of it and reassess and revisit and, and not get comfortable because those, all of those beliefs and those behaviors and those thoughts are so ingrained because they were part of you for so long that you fall back into them if you're not consciously choosing not to. And so it's taken a lot of effort. And I do feel like I'm to a place where I'm very happy with where I am. And I feel like things have gone really well. Um, and, and I feel like that my tension, my, my decisions at this point are intentional decisions, but, but I know that I can't, start gliding or it'll probably something else will come up. I'll have to <laughs> reassess again. Always. I love, I love your story so much because it is those of us who are caught in these cycles of like, this is your job. This is not. And, and we do, I think develop fear around new things or, and and it's bizarre, really, like once you get on the other side, right, there was probably a moment where you looked and you were like, why have I been so scared to drive into Portland all mm. of this time? Like, this is not a big deal. But it doesn't, it feels like such a huge deal at the time. And it feels crippling and terrifying. And I love that not only did you address it, but like you were very intentional about it. It was, there's a problem here. And I am going to force myself step by step back out of it, which is really just a beautiful wraparound to how you like slowly step by step got into it, right? That then you took the same, <laughs> like a small, like one step at a time back out and that you were able to like, listen, I think that the fact that you were motivated by your girls because you wanted to be a good parent to them is beautiful. I think the fact that you were like, I don't want you to be scared the way I was scared is beautiful. But I think what is more beautiful is that they got to watch you go through that. They got to have, you know, front row seats to watching their mother be in something that was the, you know, standing in front of the highest mountain to climb and watching you take the steps. Like that is such a template for them that they will be able to use for the rest of their lives of this is so hard and so scary, but I watched my mom do something even scarier. Like I've got this, like there is so much power in that. 
And I really want everybody to hear that because I think we get lost in, you know, what we taught them when they were young or, or undoing yeah damage or rewriting narratives. And, and it's important, but when they get to watch us walk through that, the power and the repair in that cannot be understated. And it's a gift that a lot of kids don't get. And so I just want to say you're amazing and you're doing such a good job and you have given your girls something just invaluable. Thank you. And I think so. I mean, as a, they were eight and almost eight and almost 12 when we left. And so now they're 19 and 23. And just the things that I see them doing, sometimes I sit back and just think, if I would have even, I mean, they're doing more than I even dreamed of doing at their age. Like one daughter's in Sweden right now doing a master's program. And the other one is, you know, studying music at the Berkeley College of Music. And because this is what they wanted to do and they're doing it. And so I'm, I'm very proud of them. And I hope that it was influenced by what we're doing because I remember being, putting gas in my car for the first time in 20 years. And this was after my oldest already had her license and, and her dad had taught her how to put gas in the car, but I hadn't put gas in the car in 20 years. And so I was like, come stand by me while I figure out how to put gas in the car and pretend I'm teaching you so that I don't look like an idiot (laughs) adult who doesn't know how to put gas in their car, (laughs) which is ridiculous. Um, I love this though. Like I love, okay, listen again, such like, it seems so small and silly, but like you walked into the situation, you were like, this has to stop. Right. And then you were like, what's going to get in the way of me doing this? Well, I'm going to be so embarrassed that I, as an adult, do not know how to gas the car. So I'm going to solve that by having my daughter (laughs) stand here. (laughs) Like, I think it's beautiful and so intentional and it's perfect. Yeah. And I was determined. Like at one point, my my vacuum cleaner cord broke. And this was during the divorce process. And I remember him saying, my ex-husband at the time saying, it's fine. Just order a new cord. When I'm there, I'll change it. And I was like, I'll be damned if I'm going to wait for him to come change it. Like not, not in the middle of all this. And so I ordered the cord and I found a YouTube video and just like step by step figured out how to change the cord. And it was the stupidest, smallest thing. But I was like, take that. Like I can do this. I can change the stupid vacuum cord. Like every little thing became this big challenge for me. Like I haven't done it yet. Just wait. I'm gonna do it, and then I can be somebody who's done it. Yes, and I think and that's, that's how I ended so up perfect. That advice your counselor gave you is just perfect. Like you haven't done it yet. Yeah, and I pushed pushed through. I mean that that ended up pushing me to leave the town I was in and to be do something scary and to just apply to programs in other countries and move to Sydney and get another yeah, degree. I have. Listen, I've been quietly watching you for years and watching your post and being like, damn, like that is so cool that she just is like, I'm going to go get my creative writing degree in Australia because why not? And I'm like, I mean, yeah, why not? Why would I like, but like, oh, it's scary. It but you just did it. And I think it's just so amazing, especially because I know what you came out of. I know the teachings that are there. I know how fast it happens. Like I'm a pretty damn independent person. My husband loves to, (laughs) he, he can tell when I'm in a particularly fiery little mood and he will purposefully try to boss me around so that because he'll be like, you should go do this. Or, you know, why don't you go take a bath and do your bedtime stuff or whatever. And I literally will like turn and I'm like, 
don't tell me what to do. I know what I want. Like I get so fiery about it, but I still have developed these weird fears around stupid stuff like, yeah, vacuum cords and construction projects and like things that I am completely intelligent enough to handle, but somewhere have just stopped doing them. And so now it becomes mm-hmm. this, these very, very scary things to approach as, as a woman. And yeah, I just, I love, okay. I think, I know you said it, but I just want to, are you still doing brave girl diaries? Are you still adding to that? Uh, I'm not really that I'm not really posting on the blog. I still have the Instagram and I still post on there and I've started posting some poetry on there, which poetry's never been the type of writing I do, but I've been doing it and it's been fun. Um, but the, the thing that's interesting about the Brave Girl blog is that I was doing it to sort of keep myself accountable for how I was trying to become more independent. But then when things deteriorated to a significant point where I, it was like Brave Girl blog was, the Brave Girl Diaries was my putting a positive spin on something I was struggling with. And it came to a point where I could no longer put a positive spin on it. Like it was just, it was all shit. And I was like, I can't, I can't even try to make this sound like it's going to make me a stronger person because it's terrible and I don't want to be going through it. And so I quit writing on there and I did end up posting a few times later in the process where I was starting to feel like I was getting my feet under me again. Um, and I, I always revisit and go back and think, oh, I should post more. And then I, I really haven't posted more when it comes to the blogs. But but it's this thing in the back of my mind that I keep thinking I should go back and add to. Um, but I have been maintaining the Instagram. Awesome. I love it. So I just, for anyone who wanted to go, like, yeah, track you down. I just wanted to make sure we we're still doing that. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to swing back. I'm going to pull us back to something that you said a while ago. It feels like longer because we've had a couple starts and stops since then. So I don't really know how long it's been, but you, you said something in regards to your marriage when you were talking to the counselor. Um, and I, I'm not going to lie. I was, I was a little bit surprised by it because I under, I know some of the backstory. So you had a problem in your marriage that we are not going to discuss because there are two parties in this marriage. Um, during the the last break, I got permission from you to say just so that the listeners aren't like lady. I got permission from <laughs> you to say, <laughs> guys, this was this is not like things weren't just working out. Like there were some very real large things that were happening. There was a large betrayal of trust. Um, this is a big deal and by anyone's definition, what was happening, uh, within your marriage and that you were walking through. And so to hear you say that you were talking to the counselor and being like, maybe I can just make this work. Like maybe it will just be okay. I think is really a statement to the level of fear that you were facing. Um, and I would love for you to talk a little bit more about that, about your mindset, where you were at, kind of what you were thinking during that time. Cause I think it's really applicable for a lot of people. Okay. And this is, there's a lot of layers to this, but first of all, yeah, part of me was thinking, go back to the evil I know. Not that I should call it evil, but it's like, this is the known. And even though it's not good, I know, I know now. So I, maybe I'll know how to to deal with that and how to function until I can figure something out. I kept telling myself until I can figure something out. Like I remember actually saying to my counselor, well, maybe I'll just move with him. Maybe I'll just go for maybe six months, maybe a year while I figure out how to be an independent adult by myself with him. 
so that then I could leave because I need time to figure this out. And I feel like I need to make a decision right now, which she was like, you don't need to make a decision right now. It's fine. Don't because it was, it was either the thing I knew or complete and absolute unknown. It felt like I was just jumping into this void of, uh-huh. I didn't know. And that was terrifying. That was more terrifying than this thing I knew that wasn't great yep. at the time. But she convinced me that I needed to just sit and wait. And there was this other layer as well, where part of me felt like maybe it was my fault. Maybe I had done something that had created the situation for it to happen in the first place. Maybe I had accepted things I shouldn't have accepted, which then led to bigger things happening that like I I had all of these, I'd made all these mental, you know, gymnastics in order to think, well, maybe actually I should be holding more responsibility for what happened. And therefore it's okay if I go back because now I can make changes that will help improve the situation. Even though now, like, no, none of that was true. Right. Like, doesn't even if I had done, even if things had happened that had led to whatever, whatever ended up happening, it was not justifiable. Yeah. <laughs> so I had to convince myself that that was, that was not true. And that was not a worthy reason to stay. Yeah. And so, but yeah, there was, there was a lot of fear of the unknown. And one thing that might be interesting to know is that two things my counselor did a lot of, she made me write a lot. She would give me these prompts, like, what does it actually mean to you if you put you first? Or what does it actually mean? Like, what would it, what would happen? And so I'd have to write these big, long essays based on what we were talking about and then bring them back and read them to her and we would discuss them, which was interesting. I love that. And she did this other thing that I had never heard of, and I'm going to probably it's EMDR. Have you heard of it? It's called uh, Eye Movement. Oh, what does it stand for? I suddenly I can't remember. I think I wrote it down. Let me pull it up. EMDR, Eye Movement Desensitization and pro- Reprocessing. Yes. Yes. Okay. I don't know if you said something because you froze. But um, so what she would do, what her reasoning behind it was, was she she had like this wand with this thing I had to watch where it makes your eyes move back and forth. The belief is that you are physically being distracted by this thing, but also it's engaging both your left and your right brain. And then it allows you to focus in on, um, on something. Usually it's used for people with, um, PTSD or who are are trying to work through trauma or something, but she would do this. And interestingly, she would do this and she would bring up not just things that had happened in my marriage, but things that had happened growing up that had sort of put me into this behavior or this belief system. And so the idea is that I would revisit a scenario or a memory and it would, and I was supposed to just notice like what emotions did this bring up and like what sensations was I feeling in my body? And then we could work through them because she believed a lot of what, a lot of my behaviors and reactions at at that moment were stemming from my childhood or teenage years or, you know, the years of development that, programmed those reactions. Yeah. And so we did talk some about what growing up in the church had done for my belief system and my my internal dialogue and my, you know, behaviors and reactions to things. And so that did that I mean I think that did help even if it doesn't it didn't help for the reasons like scientifically there are there's some debate as to what it, why it works or what it's doing, but even just focusing in on what emotion I'm feeling, identifying it. Yeah. And then I think sometimes it's sort of like 
speaking about the nightmare out loud, you know, once you say it out loud and you talk about it and you think, oh, actually, you're right. Like, that doesn't make sense. And so you start to sort of reprogram and reassociate new emotions with those with those memories and those events. So yes. that was an interesting tactic that she took as well. Yeah. That I think helped process. So I only went to her for a year, but she, I feel like I made so much progress. In fact, eventually she was like, I don't think you need to come back. Like, you've got this, which right. I don't know if that's true, but. Oh, I, I mean, I'm sure. I don't, I don't think they make a habit of telling you you're you're good when you're not usually unless you're a really big pain in the ass. And I, I mean, I don't know, maybe you were. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, Oh, I love, I love that. And I heard at least 70% of it. Um, (laughs) enough to, to extrapolate what we're talking about. Um, I will say I, first of all, counseling, like, yes, if you can afford it, get to it, figure something out. Like, it's extraordinarily helpful. It was very, very helpful for me as well, trying to, yeah, relearn like, yeah, why do I think this? And why am I reacting like that? And what's actually happening and naming the monster. So true. I remember I had, I was struggling with, um, severe, severe anxiety. Um, oh my God, it was so bad. And one of the things that she was explaining to me is that when we fight an emotion, like when we are trying not to have it, like, oh, it's fine. And it's not a big deal. And like, it actually makes it bigger. Like that, uh, that energy of that fight enlarges mm-hmm. what you're fighting against. And like, I, I kind of understood it. I could, I could feel it. But one of the things she advised me to do is she was like, when you feel that coming, like stop trying to fight it. Just like, let it in. Just like, let it go through you. Yeah. Look at it, examine it. Mm-hmm. Right. And I remember I was in the bathtub. I have a lot of important things happen in the bathtub. I say that a lot. I'm always in the bathtub. (laughs) (laughs) But I was in the bathtub and I was having just a full like panic attack. And it was like one of the worst ones I'd had. I felt like this thing, I was going to die. Like it was like, I won't survive if I let this in. But it was so big and the fight was so huge that I couldn't do it anymore. And I was so exhausted that I finally, cause when she first said to me, like, just let it come through you. I thought in my head, like, I was like, that's the dumbest thing I have ever heard. Like, why would I do that? <laughs> and I was so tired that I finally just like collapsed and was like, all right, fine. And it felt like a freight train coming at me. Like it was so big and so scary and I'll be damned if it did not. Yeah. Go through me and dissipate immediately. Like, did the problem go away? No. Did I still have to figure out what I was going to do? Sure. This stuff to like, yeah, be brave and deal with it. Yes. But now that I had, had let it through, I stopped fighting. I was able to see it. It's like, okay, yeah, I'm scared and I'm anxious and I'm freaking out. But like, okay, now we can, now we can move on. There's so much power in a lot of these tools that you can get from, mm-hmm. yeah, trained professionals. You just get like clarity and you just calmer approach so that you can actually do something about it. Yeah, Absolutely. Oh, thank you. Is there anything that you would like to share and you so don't have to because it's super personal? Um, as far as women that are going through this and trying to find themselves and their power and their voice and their dreams and all of these things again, is there anything when you were going back and looking at why you were reacting the way that you were reacting that you think would be helpful or that you would like to share with anyone that is listening before we scoot along? No, I think that a lot of it at the core was just this belief that 
um, I needed to not rock the boat, like other people's emotions and, you know, happiness and all of that needed to be prioritized in a way. And so if this other person was experiencing something and it was having a negative impact on me, in my mind, their, their emotions were going to be considered first. And in this case, and, and I suppose that it was definitely magnified with the whole in the church, it needed to be your husband's or your father's or, you know, their concerns were priorities. There was probably some of that, but a lot of it was that, that like this belief that like, when you're in a big family, when you're in a, in a community, when you're in a church, when you're in a marriage, when you're a parent, like you don't get to be the priority. You always have to look out for somebody else's needs first. It's always, you know, that them first and then you. And so much of it was me being unwilling to put myself first or to consider what I wanted. And it was me just trying to keep the peace and make sure everybody else had what they needed. Yeah. And a lot of that kept coming up. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and that, that is the role of a woman in a highly religious environment. We are the peacekeepers, the peacemakers, and we are constantly lifted up and, and lauded as, as being martyrs. Like that is literally what we're known for. But I was like, no more. I mean, unless I decide to on my own terms, but, that, but at times you, you might think you are. And I think that's the thing that I've taken away after years of fighting it is that you finally think, no, I'm going to address this on my own terms. And they sneak back in. So you have to constantly be aware of it. Which, I mean, that's a lesson everybody should learn. You should be. You should be reassessing and reevaluating what your belief system is. Everybody should be. Absolutely. Absolutely. Have you seen, there's a, there's a painting that went a little bit viral on Facebook, I think fairly like within the last couple of years. And I probably would have kind of liked this because it's an, it's an LDS painting. Um, and I probably would have liked it. And now I despise it like vehemently. I have a lot of anger around this image because yeah, we're taught in a, a lot of yeah high demand Christianity religions that mothers should be martyrs. So that is our job. And we not only were taught that in young women's and blah, 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 but we also watched our mothers do it. You know, we watched, and mm -hmm. then we watched our mothers be praised for, for this as, and lifted up for this. And so it does create this narrative of like, that is how we are of highest value. And I don't believe that at all anymore. I think that we can actually offer a lot more when we are, yeah, whole humans yeah. who are living lives. Um, but so there's this painting that popped up and yeah, my emotional reaction to it was very strong. So there is a woman and she is like kneeling down. Um, she's got a book and she's showing it to her child. And uh, <laughs> it, it's, it's this very, you know, beautiful photo, except for the fact that she's got a shield that she's using to protect her child. And there's flaming arrows that are in the shield but then there are flaming arrows all over her back. And like, you, there's, there's blood. Like if you zoom in, like her <laughs> back is bloodied and destroyed oh. from these flaming arrows. And I was so angry when I first saw this because this is exactly it. They're, the martyrdom and the lifting up of dying for your child. Like that's what our job is. We are supposed to die for our children, not stand as examples, just die for them. 
And what really well, irritated me is I was like, she has a shield that she could have used to protect both of both them. Of them. <laughs> yes. Like, instead of the way that she has arranged this, like, it's just asinine to me. But this is the type of imagery that is put up as so holy and godlike and we take it in this was shared so many times i saw this on my facebook for weeks popping up with people of just like how beautiful is this and i am screaming inside do you know what i don't like about it in addition to that so she's leaning over and she's like showing the child the book and she's smiling and the child is smiling and there are literal arrows in her back yet she is not yes yes that so it's too. like, don't show, don't show if you're having hardship, just be there and be this positive light. Like, I feel like, I mean, I agree with you. There are, obviously there are, you, you would probably die for your child if it really came down to it. But yeah, more importantly, I think you need to, like you said, be your whole, be a whole person in your, in your own right. And I think there's this, actually a study that's been done that shows that mothers that work and have like, you know, personal interests end up having more children that are more well-balanced and well-rounded and well-adjusted as adults because their mother wasn't solely there for their purpose all the time. They wasn't sacrificing herself to the point where she was just mom. She wasn't a person anymore. And so that's what I feel like this is representing. Like don't show anything that's happening with your, with, with you or your struggle. Just be the mom. Yes. And I really, I, I would like to see more narratives being shared of not how our mothers died for us or how they killed themselves for us or how they stopped being who they were for us and more narratives of my mom is this person, right? This is who my mom is, not she's just my mother. Not that just, yes. just was a poor word choice there, but we are. But I know what people. you mean. Yeah. yeah. And I feel like that's definitely something that my girls have gotten to see more because they were 17 and 12 when we got divorced. And, and so it was just, in fact, both of them at one point or another said that we were like Gilmore girls because just us girls hanging out and doing stuff. But, but I was more real about it. And I was more like open about what I was struggling on and struggling with and things that were hard for me and would point it out, be like, you know, you can just do this. And so when one of them, I remember my oldest is like, all my friends are getting married and having kids and have careers. And I'm still living with my parent and still going to university at this point. It was like last year. And I said, um, I'm 43 and I'm still in university and I was living with my parents briefly (laughs) and I'm living with my parents. So it doesn't mean anything (laughs) like you're doing what you're doing and you should only be comparing yourself to, you know, where you're coming from and where you're going and what your plan is, you know? Um, And so, yeah, I, I think it's important to realize that we're all just people. And I think that they've seen me go through it and I hope, and I think that it has been helpful for them. Yeah. So. Absolutely. And I I think there's a huge difference somewhere along the line. This narrative came in of, yeah, like, don't let your kids see your problems. Like be the adult, be the, you know, be the man, be the 
father, be the mother, whatever it is. And uh, that I think is so detrimental because yes, now we as children don't know how to deal with problems because we had no idea they even existed in the first place. (laughs) But I will specify that there is a difference between going to your child who is a child and not a mature adult and mm, crying on their shoulders if they are a therapist Mm. right? and putting a weight on them that they are not old enough to deal with versus saying, hey, I'm having a really hard time with this. I'm going to work through it. Here are some things I'm looking at, but I just want you to know that if I'm a little off or I'm a little emotional, like this is just what I'm navigating right now because it, it doesn't add trauma to them. And instead it gives them the toolbox to deal with their own shit later. Yes. I think so. I agree. And I feel like, Uh. You also should be able to say, you know what? I did this thing and I was wrong. Turns yes. Out I'm still learning things and I can admit that I didn't have the information I have now or, or I shouldn't have behaved that way or I was angry and said something I shouldn't or, you know, just that <clears throat> willingness to own up to it is important as well. Yes. In all things. I agree with you so much. Like I am the first to say, you know what? I screwed up. And I'm sorry, like, I'm a, yes, I'm your parent, but like, I messed up. And it gives them permission also to say, you know what? I messed up. Like, it's okay. Oh, I love it. Yeah. You're doing such amazing work and you've done such amazing work over there. And I'm so grateful that you were open to talking about this because it's a message that, that people need because it's both honest, but it's also so, so hopeful. Well, good. I'm happy to share my story. Before we go, because we are definitely getting to the end of your story, what what do you either want to say that we did not hit on? And also, what would you say to women who are standing at the edge of the light and looking into the dark? I don't know that I have anything profound to add that I haven't said. I'm sure I could give more examples, but, but honestly, I think, I think it comes back to sort of what my counselor said about that. Just because you haven't done it yet, or does just because you haven't done it doesn't mean you can't do it. Just means you haven't done it yet. And I remember I was I was talking to somebody. I actually was talking to my my ex sister in law recently for different situation, but similar feelings and kind of having this conversation with her, and and saying, you know, I'm not really brave. I just go do stuff because I've gotten a lot of comments about my willingness to sell my house and to get rid of all my stuff and to go to a foreign country and to, you know, just take chances and, and how sometimes other people say they don't feel that brave. And I've given them that quote, like, just say it back. This has helped me. Maybe it will help you. And I remember her saying, well, we all think you're great and and are impressed and think you're so brave. In fact, my niece had said at one point, I want to be just like Aunt Jenny. Like she's such a girl boss. And I was so shocked. Like you have no idea what other people are thinking when they're watching you do these things you're doing. Like I never would have suspected that yes. she would have thought that just from seeing what I've been doing while I've just been struggling to do it. So, I mean, if that's helpful for someone else, like I hope it will be because I, it it was profound for me just thinking about it from that perspective. So hopefully someone can see me doing it 
and, and, you know, take courage to follow in my footsteps yes. in that regard. Yes. And I, and you're exactly right. And the episode that just dropped today, um, Sierra's episode. So the day we're recording it is the day Sierra's dropped. I know these are not going to line up, but there's a moment in that interview where she's talking about how the choices I was making in my life impacted her decision to start changing. Um, and I had no, I, I had no idea. Like I had no, I had absolutely no idea. And there was a moment where she was like, you know, I was just always so impressed because you would just say what you thought, like you spoke your mind and you were authentically you. And it was amazing. And it was so encouraging for me. And, and I was tearing up because I was like, I'm not, I'm not going to argue. I'm not going to argue with you that you're, what you saw was incorrect. And like, thank you for telling me because that's beautiful. But I need you to understand. I need everyone that's listening to understand that what I did is yes, I spoke my truth because I just couldn't not anymore. But then I would go out to the car and I would berate myself and be like, why can't you just shut up? Like, why can't you just be what you're supposed to be, be the person you're supposed to be, like fall in line. And so even when we are terrified, when we don't feel like we're doing anything, when we don't feel like we're doing enough, like we are impacting people. Mm -hmm. And I have, like, I can tell you, I have been watching you for years and being like, well, shit, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, and, and you probably had moments of being like, what am I doing? What am I doing? Like, this is insane, but it still impacts the rest of us just as powerfully if, as if you were walking in it being like, I am a girl boss, damn it. <laughs> the impact to those around you is the same. And I think we all look out and see other people doing things we admire and we don't remember that we're doing that for someone else. I mean, you've done that for me yes. with your writing and it's made me think, oh, oh, I just need to do it more and get it out there because I've written a billion things and published nothing. But you know, there's yeah. still time. Make a new decision. Yeah. There is. There is. Well, I love like when you posted on your Brave Girls Diary, I wonder if I should post poetry. And I did, I kind of laughed to myself and I posted that sounds exactly like a brave girl's diary. Like post that shit. And it was great. <laughs> it's so true. Like we all, we look to each other and we think, okay, well, if they did it, like I can do it. Yeah. There's just so much power in that. So much power. So thank you for being a light. Cause I know you've been a light to way more people than you even know. And that you will continue to do that as you keep like finding your voice and tackling your dreams. And I just, you are on such a beautiful trajectory and I can't wait to see what you do. Thank you. I appreciate it. And I agree. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I love it. I love it. Jenny, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. You did me. an amazing job. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider taking the time to like, rate, review, and share. Let's make sure that when someone clicks on this podcast, that our voices are the loudest. Love you all. There once was a woman who lost her way. She wandered through thickets and thorns. They told her her pain was not but the price of finding her soul again. 
silent. She was silent, but she'll carry her pain no more. Silent. She was silent, but she'll carry.